If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Exodus. That's where we're going to be today. A little bit of a different passage today. Um, I'm excited about it. And while you're turning to Exodus, we're going to be in the middle of it around chapter 23. While you're turning there, if you're maybe a guest, you haven't been coming, or maybe you've missed a couple online, we're still walking through the series on Exodus. Um, it's been a really good book. I've enjoyed this book, um, and, and I think you're going to enjoy it more, especially if you're new to the Bible. If you're new to the Bible um, or new-ish, I think passages like today, chapters like today and next week are going to help you kind of unlock some of the New Testament even. It's going to make more sense of some different passages. Because um, over the years, I've labored very hard. Uh, all of our leadership has it cramming as much gospel in Jesus in every sermon that we do. doesn't matter if I'm preaching, anyone that touches this pulpit, anyone that speaks to Legacy Church, it is one of our highest priorities to center it on the glorious work of God through the person of Jesus. It's going to be gospel-saturated. Um, we do that with no apologies, Right? I mean, Randy did a great job at this two weeks ago. Jake has done a great job. Anyone that's ever been up here. And that is because we believe that is the only way, no other way, to change a heart, to grow a family, to change a city. It's going to be the gospel that does that. The future of your growth as a person, your ability to change, your family to grow, your marriage to grow, the future of this city, any city, is going to be locked to humanity's affections for what God has done through Jesus so how you see Jesus, how you savor his work, how you adore him, that's going to be where change is located at. And so whenever we see the things on the news about Afghanistan or North Korea or China or even here in the United States of America, what we're really asking for in our prayers is that God would substantially change through his gospel the situation. And I know that sounds like a, a pitch thrown too far a little bit. How does the gospel alter and edit an earthquake? How does the gospel change a pandemic? And the truth is, is it, it doesn't, right? We're in a broken creation that just comes unstitched and unraveled as we see, right? But it does change how we respond to those things. It does change how we handle each other. It changes how we work, how we neighbor, how we spend, how we play, how we create, how we pray for things. It changes all of that. Because when we're satisfied with Jesus above all things, we don't have any need for the other things that compete, like terrorism. No need for it if you're satisfied with Jesus. No need for theft or shame. No need for some of the things that kind of plague us. So the ramifications of adoring Jesus are great. Great. So whenever you do pray, pray that Jesus would have his name made famous among the nations that the gospel would explode in war-torn places and places where they can't find food or places where there's been earthquakes. But this is why we center our gravity on the gospel every Sunday morning as well. And I'm not alone in this, right? This isn't something unique to us as a church. One of the things that Spurgeon said, Spurgeon, if you if you're, don't know who that is, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was kind of the Michael Jordan of preaching back in the day. They called him the Prince of Preachers. I bet if he was to preach today, we probably wouldn't think so, right? But back then, he was a really big deal. And this is what he said whenever he was teaching other preachers how to preach. He said, regarding Christ, I will go over hedge and ditch, but I will get at him. Goes on to say, we must have Christ in all of our discourses, meaning sermons. Whatever else is in or not in them, 
There ought to be enough of the gospel in every sermon to save a soul. We agree with that, obviously, but I would even add to what Spurgeon is saying here and saying that we need to have enough gospel, enough Christ in every sermon, not to just save a soul, but to show how the soul can be sustained. Because the gospel is not effective just for salvation, but for sustaining us and satisfying us through all of life, right? He would go on to teach these same guys that just as every road goes to Rome, every passage ends at the foot of the cross in the empty tomb. And I believe that. And like I said, we've labored really hard to show that and make it evident to you. Now, some passages, they lend themselves easily to that, right? It's easy to see Christ, especially in the New Testament, which is why most people love it so much. Some passages, a little bit more difficult. We have to go through hedge and ditch, kind of like what Spurgeon had said, but we will get at him. Today, we have a highway to Christ. And what what I consider personally to probably be the climax to the book of Exodus. You'd think it would be a Red Sea, right? I think we're going to find it today. So again, if you're new to the Bible, you'll probably learn a little bit today. If you're an older soul, let this passage remind you of how beautiful Jesus is and how he alone is sufficient and enough for you to change, for you to grow, right? And and there's going to be a lot for us to learn in passages like that. But again, as a church, we're really big on biblical literacy, Um, which, by the way, just as as a side note, that's why we don't have a class for our kids above the age of 10. We've got a lot going on for kids 10 and younger. We don't have anything going on for our kids 11 and older. We want them in here. If you're okay with it, we would love for them to be in here. We want them to hear from this. And I know what you're thinking. 11 is too young to understand what's going on. Correct. All of it, sure, but they are picking up things. I remember being in church when I was 12 and 13 and 14, did not love Jesus. My parents were dragging me in there, and they made me wear this clip-on tie. I only had one. I wore it on football game days at school, and then I wore it to church. That's the only time I wore that dumb tie, right? And it was a clip-on because I don't know how to tie a tie. But I had this contest. I would see how many times I could roll it or fold it up and then let it go, right? While the guy was preaching, that's what I did. I was like, okay, I did it 19 times. Let's see if I can get 20 this time. And I'd roll it up 20 times and then let it go. And I was just bored out of my gourd the whole time the old man was up there talking about stuff I didn't care about. But what happened was is when I was in college and the gospel was preached to me, it was, it was interesting how much I was able to recall, how much I was able to remember. Subtly, there was a foundation being laid. It was, it was nuanced for sure with my memory, but there was a foundation being laid where I was able to kind of pick a passage here and remember something that was said there, right? Biblical literacy in the church is dropping at an increasing rate. That's one of the statistics that's most alarming to church leaders. I did not say biblical literacy in the United States. I said biblical literacy in the church is dropping, right? I think passages like this when they're avoided, is part of the reason for that. So we're going to hit it hard today. So we're going to be in chapter 23, verse 20. We're going to jump in. A lot to look at today. Verse 20 of chapter 23. This is a really interesting part in their story. We've already talked about how they've had the law given to them. They've already had ordinances given to them. So we looked at social justice last week. And then here it is. He says, Behold... I send an angel before you, the Lord says, to guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him to obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. For my name is in him. 
But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Okay, pause. Who is this angel, right? Let's not skip past that. Who is this angel, right? Now, there, the answer is just we don't know. Okay, now there's a bunch of theories. Some of them are stupid. I found the, the best three. I'll give them to you. You could choose your favorite and move on with your life, all right? Because it's probably not going to affect your Tuesday very much. One of them is, is it was a literal angel. It could have been an angel. Uh, the archangel Michael is the top candidate for most people. He was known to war with the enemy as an adversary. We'd see that in Revelation and in another book, I believe. And, but, but here's the problem with that. He does not have the power to forgive which is kind of noted in this, so there's a problem with that. Another theory is it was Joshua who would be a central figure in the, in the future leadership of this nation, and his name means Jesus. But again, he does not have the power to forgive, so maybe not. Some say it could be Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus. So what I mean when I say pre-incarnate is Jesus did not begin in a manger. Jesus has always existed. Jesus is beyond time, just like the Father and the Spirit. The Trinity is timeless. Now, he started and incarnated from the manger on, and right now he is permanently human and permanently God, right? But back then, there were, there, it's possible that there was a pre-incarnate Jesus. That's what we think we see when, in Genesis when we, sell, when we see Melchizedek. So if you're reading and you come across Melchizedek, you're like, well, that's an interesting cat. He was. Could have been Jesus. We don't know. This could have been the same thing. I don't know, right? There's problems in all of these answers. Those are the best three. Good luck, okay? Regardless of his identity, we see a theme here. The theme is, is God makes a way for his people to thrive. He's making a way. He's guiding them. This was an act of kindness. They didn't know where to go. They're tromping around in the dirt and the dust in the wilderness, have you ever been lost before in the wilderness? I have. As a trail runner, I've run sometimes and I've gotten off the path and not paid attention. And I'm like, where, where am I? Any leadership would help right now. And when you're lost, any path will get you there, right? You don't know where to go. That's where they're at. So he gives them some leadership. He's creating a space for them to thrive. He's making a way for them to thrive. Now, just as a side note, if you flash forward, you're going to see a very loud echo of this in the New Testament. Because you and I, we have one greater than an angel who leads us through a wilderness with even more fierce enemies to a place of peace that is bigger than their place of peace. And he has the authority of God and forgiveness in his heart. He's Jesus. He's God in the flesh who fights for us, leads us, forgives rebels, carries authority as a kindness because just like them, you and me, without his leadership, well, any road will get us there, right? We just drift with no purpose. All right, let's jump back in. Uh, verse 23. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars into pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and throw them into confusion 
all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you, and I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you, until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Okay. That's really an easy passage until you get to the part where he's going to bless them and always give them food and water and they'll never be sick and miscarry. That's just something I'm not willing to just read through without talking about a little bit because what about us? Do we get to hold on to these promises as well? Because I know people who have miscarried and so do you. We know people who have been sick. We know people who have struggled with these things. I think it's important for us to remember and for some of us recognize, this was a specific word to a specific people at a specific moment for a very, very specific purpose. He's preparing a people who are going to carry and bring Jesus into the world. So this is not a promise for us today. It's simply not. They're situated in a different covenant, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. The promise that God has made to us in a different covenant is superior to this one. It's superior to this one. And this is why it's interesting because when we read passages like that, we, 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 it looks like a better covenant to us. One where God promises that we'll never miscarry, get sick, always have bread and water and friends and wealth. That sounds like the better deal. It sounds like they got the better deal. But the covenant that God has set up with us on this side of the cross is as superior as light is to darkness. This is, this is what Peter says in 1 Peter. Concerning this salvation, meaning our new covenant, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Be encouraged. Of all the times that God brought you into this creation, of all the milliseconds in the timeline of human history, he brought you into this timeline where here in 2021, you'd get to experience the fruit of a new covenant, which is the better covenant. Be encouraged that what you get to celebrate with Christ, the hope of glory, what you get to celebrate is something that even the angels themselves would long to peer into and understand. On top of that, we've got to be careful as Bible readers, we've got to be careful of drawing a straight line between an Old Testament and us. We have to be very concerned whenever we find other people doing it as well. If you follow the Ten Commandments and all of the ordinances, you'll still have tragedy in your life. Did you know that? And if you have tragedy and you find yourself sick, it's not because God is punishing you for breaking an ordinance or one of the Ten Commandments. I know it might sound weird to some of you, but some of you, you get what I'm saying because you grew up like I did in a stream of Christianity to where if you were sick or something was pervasively troubling you, it was seen as maybe you have a hidden sin. 
Maybe there's sin in your life. Maybe you've done something. Maybe there's a tremendous amount of repentance that you need to go through. And if you are wealthy or healthy, then obviously you have done something very well. And that's just not true. In fact, it's a spit in the face of the gospel because you have Jesus who didn't have any friends, who was not wealthy, and he was persecuted on a cross by who? Wealthy men who did have a lot of friends, right? So we see the flip side of that in the gospel itself. The key I want you to keep picking out of all of this so we don't get lost in the details is again, another time, we see God making a way for his people to thrive. He's not just guiding them through cloud and flame and angel. He's preserving them from starvation and miscarriage and tragedy. That's, he's caring for his people. He's making a way for them to thrive. And he does throw something in there that we're going to hit again in a couple weeks. He says, don't make a covenant with them or their gods, talking about the other nations. Listen, covenants are a pretty big deal. Again, we'll talk about it in a moment. But in a few passages, we're going to see them break this covenant. And they're going to start a new one with something they made with their hands, a golden calf, right? I mean, wrap your mind around that. They make something with their hands, and then they bow down and worship it, knowing that they just handcrafted it with their hands. That's how it gets, this thing, this statue that never made a way for them, never wanted them to thrive, never fed them, didn't break them out of slavery, didn't part a sea in half. And they did it because they couldn't see God. They couldn't sense God. His presence was up on a mountain. They got tired of waiting. They didn't trust him. They trusted in themselves. That's what we see. And it's important because this is true for us today. When we don't sense God and we don't feel God, and we don't trust God, so we start trusting in ourselves. We start looking around the things around us to say that it will save us instead of God, who obviously is not here. That's why we turn to money as such a big idol in our lives. Maybe money can save me. Maybe politics, maybe the right person in office can save me. Maybe my career can define me and make me. Maybe my reputation or my image can bring significance to me. Maybe sex Maybe my kids can bring meaning to my life. Maybe my spouse, media, knowledge, safety, comfort, escape, you name it. We still worship false gods. We borrow them from the surrounding nations. We make them with our own hands. We still serve foreign gods. And that's because they lie to us and we believe the lie. The average idol will tell your heart, I am better for you than God. After all, God's not here. You can't feel his presence, right? And he doesn't even want you to have good things. I want you to have good things, and all you have to do is serve me a little bit, and I will give you what you want. That's what an idol says. And we believe it. We believe it. And I think the temptation for the average person, and I am the average person, whenever we hear somebody talk about idols, usually something pops up in our mind, right? And we wonder, is that an idol? He's talking about idols. This is the only thing I could think about in my life that could be an idol. Surely he's not talking about that. Is he talking about that? Is that an idol? I don't know if that's an idol. If that's happening to you, you will be tempted to redress it, to recalibrate it, to be something that's just a hobby or a necessity. Our temptation is to dress, window dress those things that are killing us as something that's acceptable. That will be your temptation right now. But let me ask you, where is it that you get most emotionally charged whenever you get it? Where do you get most emotionally ragged when you lose it? It's fine to be happy and sad when we get and lose things, but when you are cosmically devastated or cosmically delighted at something, you might have found an idol. If you can't live without something, it might be an idol. Because an idol will rearrange our emotions disproportionately. It's one of the tells. 
That's a different sermon. Let's go on. Chapter 24, verse 1. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who burned burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And, the, and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Okay. Let's pause for a moment. This worship moment that we're seeing is the pinnacle of the book, in my opinion. In some ways, we still model this progression. When we have a service today, it's going to be modeled after this. There's the giving of the word. There's the confession of the people. There's the celebration of the application of the blood of Jesus. We still kind of trip into line with what we're reading right here. But let's just be honest. There's a lot of blood being thrown around right here, right? There's a lot of blood. If you ever get to this place where they're talking about blood being tossed all over the place... And everyone else in the room acts like that's normal, and you're the one thinking, is that normal? You're the normal person. That's weird. That's supposed to be intriguing. That's supposed to dig into your curiosity. That's supposed to beg the question, why, why would you throw blood on people or on an altar? Why mess with blood at all? It's kind of inappropriate, right? We're going to get to that. Because, I mean, Universally, regardless of the age or the continent or the people group, blood is typically seen as the symbol or the icon of life, right? You could go back 300 years and go to some island no one's ever been on, and if you were to ask them to describe the essence of life, very likely they're going to say blood, not bones or brain or anything like that, but blood. It's just kind of universally what we've always thought of to symbolize life. But then there's these offerings, one of them is burnt. One of them's a burnt offering. That would be an animal that they would put up and burn that joker to the crisp, right? Just ash, like an old campfire leftover. No one's eaten off of it. There's nothing good about it. It's just a bunch of ash. That was to symbolize total consumption. Total consumption. The total destruction of a substitute for the sins of the people. But then there was a second offering that he mentions. That's the peace offering. A little bit differently, they would drain the blood from that animal and then they would locate that animal in two key places. One is on the altar, which stands for the presence of God. That's God's presence. And the other is the people, right? So you have the altar of God representing the giver of the covenant. You have the people, the recipients of the covenant. You might say that the blood is connecting both parties of the covenant, the giver and the recipient, right? You see, for sin to be forgiven, blood would have to be a player in the equation. Blood is required in the equation. This is how the author of Hebrews would say it many moons later. He would say, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
Listen, if Hebrews has been a tough book for you in the past, by the way, when I was a newer Christian, I would read Hebrews and I'd think, what a bore fest. Like, I don't even understand what's going on. I mean, it's like you're reading the Old Testament almost. I mean, I thought this was in the New Testament. It's because you probably don't understand Exodus very well. But they travel together, Genesis, Exodus, in Hebrews, they kind of cooperate. They co-mingle and collaborate. So the more you understand Hebrews, the better you'll understand Exodus and vice versa. The more you understand Exodus, by God's grace, when the series is over, you'll be able to go back and make more sense of what's happening in Hebrews. But blood is being splashed all over the place, making a mess. And that's abnormal. Because when we're covered in blood, you can assume safely something has gone wrong, right? That's what you're supposed to walk away with. Something is desperately wrong. And that's the point. Something has gone wrong. Something has gone very wrong. We've sinned against a God. We sinned against God himself. And for forgiveness to occur, something has to accept judgment or justice is not just. Just judgment has to be delivered. Right? So for them, it would be an animal. For you and me, it would be a king. But why so drastic? I mean, let's just ask the question for a moment. If God is so big and he's so good, so forgiving, so thoughtful, and so mature, why not just overlook it? Why be so drastic with a a replacement with blood and all and death? It's important to know that God is just. God is pure justice, not tainted to the least. And our sin against God is not just your average sin. It's sin against a good cosmic forever God, an ultimate God, a cosmic forever ultimate God. That's who our sin is against. And so the sin is of a cosmic forever nature and it's worthy of a cosmic forever penalty or else justice is not just. Also consider that penalties for crimes, they escalate depending on the object of the crime. We'll put it in today's lessons. I mean, if you were to, if I, I mean, I don't have any, our neighborhood is full of dogs. Everyone's got a dog, right? If I were to kidnap one of the dogs, was that dog napping? If I was to dog nap my neighbor's dog, right? I don't know how much trouble I'd get in that. You can email me if you know. Don't really care. I don't plan on doing it. But I assume I won't go to jail. I'll probably get in a bunch of trouble, right? Pay a lot of money, end up in court if I steal someone's dog, right? But what if I kidnap my neighbor, <laughs> I might go to jail for that. I'm just going to say, you'll have to find another pastor, something like that, go to another church. I I kidnapped somebody, right? I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to go to jail. What if I kidnapped a police officer, though? Well, that's serious. Now we're talking, right? What if I kidnap a senator? What if I kidnap the president? You see where I'm going? You see where I'm going with that? Escalation of penalty, depending on the object of the transgression. So sinning against an ultimate forever God would demand an ultimate forever penalty. That's why so drastic. If this is not true, God is not just. Maybe now we can see a little bit on why the substitute that we have needs to be fully man and fully God because of the penalty that is deserved. We need someone to stand in for us, tooth for tooth, eye for eye, and life for life. You see, the sacrificial system, blood and all, was with his covenant people. Now, if you've been through our partnership class here at Legacy, we do talk about 
covenants a little bit because we have a partnership covenant here. Um, But just to remind you, or maybe you don't know covenants, and I'm going to be really broad brush. Again, don't email me. You can get way in the weeds on what a covenant is. I'm going to be very broad. It's a weighty agreement, like a bond made between parties. They had terms that both parties or at least one party would have to keep to keep the covenant, right? So some are conditional. We'll call them a covenant of works, a conditional covenant. That would be like, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. If you do A, I'll do B. Now, someone can break that covenant easily, and it happens all the time. So here, what he is doing is he's setting a conditional covenant of works with his people. Here is my law. If you follow it, you'll be blessed. If you do not follow it, there's going to be problems. There's going to be problems. But there's a second kind of covenant, and that's the one of grace. That is an unconditional covenant where I will do something regardless of what you do. Regardless of what you do. You can be as nasty as you want and I will not change my position. And this is where the highway to the person work of Jesus shows up in our passage. We see God setting the table for us in this moment. Right? Because we're just like these people. We make idols with our hands. We make deals with our hearts. We too are in need of God to make a way for us to thrive. We need God to help us because there's just not enough animals in the world (laughs) to bleed out for the sins that I can commit in one day. There's just not enough animals, not enough blood in the world to keep up with mankind's issues. We need more. So 1,600 years later, God would come himself. As Randy said so eloquently a couple weeks ago, the lawmaker came to be the law keeper for rebellious law breakers. God would come himself in the flesh as Jesus, not to just follow the old covenant perfectly, but to establish a new one, a new covenant with you and with me. Because we couldn't. We can't. We're helpless. Jesus is God in the flesh who would perfectly uphold the law with no rebellion, Tempted in every single way you've ever been tempted. All the temptations that you face constantly, Christ was tempted in every single way you were, except he never failed. Jesus is God in the flesh who would fulfill this covenant and then love us so much to create a new one for you and me. One that angels would long to look into. Jesus is the final burnt offering. His life totally consumed on the cross, requiring no more animals to be destroyed. Jesus is the final peace offering with his blood being poured out for rebellious people. And he shed his blood, not from an altar of bronze or stone, but from a cross to connect us to a good God with an unconditional love for us. Jesus is the better angel who leads us through a wilderness. He has forgiveness in his heart and the authority of God as he roots all of our enemies and preserves us to the very end. Jesus is the better lamb who covers our shame and tells the angel of death, you shall not pass. Jesus is the better substitute who gives life for life so that God's justice can be pure. Jesus is God in the flesh. To say that this passage, 1,600 years before Jesus, is all about Jesus, it's an understatement. We've barely touched the tip of the iceberg You see, this covenant in Exodus is two-sided. It's works. You do and I'll do. You do and I'll do. 
If you fail, there's going to be problems. Our covenant is one-sided. It's one of grace. I will be your father, he says, no matter what you do. This is so important for us. This is so important for us. In our faithlessness, God remains faithful. In your rebellion today, the only thing your rebellion bumps into is God's love, mercy, and grace. Now, you might find discipline too. That's the deepest form of love he can show us. That's how fathers take care of their kids. The only thing your rebellion will find is love, grace, and mercy. Here's the problem when we read a passage like this. Here's my problem. I'm just like you and I'm like everyone else. We are a people that return to a different covenant. We abandon this one. Instead of being covered with the blood of Jesus, we cover ourselves with deeds and behavior. We'll take Jesus' merit, which was perfect and upheld the law, and we'll replace it with our own merit. I'm in a missional community like many of you. If you're not in one, I suggest that you get into one. They're very helpful. And most, if not all, of our missional communities are in the middle of or about to start or finishing um, one of our modules in Saturate, which is the curriculum that we're kind of all traveling through together. And our community is going through the module on gospel fluency. So how to be fluent in the story of God for each other, for ourselves, and for the world. And one of the things that Jeff Vanderstelt, the teacher of the module, said in the very first session is, we're all unbelievers. Now, that, listen, that's a disjointing statement, right? It jars us a little bit. We're all unbelievers to some degree in some moments. That's why we turn to sin. Behind every sin is an act, a thought, a trust, an unbelief in God. We don't believe him. We don't believe he is who he says he is. We don't sense his blood is enough, so oftentimes we add to it. So what that will do is it will make us as Christians behave and obey and perform, but not from freedom. We're not doing it with a freedom. We're doing it with this need to earn favor, this need to prove our merit, to prove that we are worth it. This is rampant in the religious South. It's one of the primary reasons we planted a church here. This type of religious live. Listen, this is why you feel rotten on some weeks and self-righteous on others. It's because of how you view your own merit, performance, obedience. This is why you are able to judge other Christians so harshly and then the very next moment judge yourself even more harshly because of merit, performance, obedience. This is why we hesitate to go to God in prayer. This is why we hesitate to go and, and meet with anybody it's because we feel like we're just too dirty. We're not clean enough. We've got to clean ourselves a little bit first. I'll return when I'm less dirty because when we fail, when we don't behave, when we don't perform, there's shame. There's shame for us. And the only way we feel like we could rinse all the shame off is to behave better, perform deeper, obey, obey, obey. This is what we call shame-based obedience. Here's the thing. Shame is never going to change you. It might make you stop doing something for a minute or two. You'll bend back. The human heart wants what the human heart wants. The only lasting change, the only hope for humanity comes from adoring Jesus as God's grace to us in the face of our sins. Change comes from the freedom that Jesus brings, the freedom that he brings. This is why we fight so hard as preachers to land squarely in the gospel and its hero in Jesus in absolutely everything we do. 
Just not interested in shaming you into looking different on Tuesday. Not interested in shaming you into giving more money to the church, even though the church needs money. Not interested in shaming you into evangelism, even though we should be evangelizing. Not interested in shaming you into, be, into in just being different, performing different, living different, performing different. It won't work. It won't work. It'll build Pharisees cloaked in shame. I'm not against obedience. I'm for gospel freedom. Because if God's affection for you pivots on your merit, then the gospel's the worst news in the world. It means we've got a lot of work to do, to be smiled upon, to be embraced, to be drawn close. And we're not even close. See, grace in itself, grace being God's affection for you and his favor for you, totally despite you, which is pretty much the definition of it, God's favor to you despite you, it's offensive. It's offensive on its face value because it removes you from the equation. It's a one-party covenant. He adores you and you didn't do anything. You didn't do anything to deserve it in spite of your best and in spite of your worst. Your greatest points of change in this life will come whenever you're able to look your sin in the eye and say, I want Jesus more than you. I want Jesus more than you. That's where change comes, not from shame, not from greed. It comes. Your deepest growth will come when your affections for Christ literally outcompete your affections for sin. This is why we hold Christ up so high as often as we can that you would adore him, be allured by him, be enticed by him, be fascinated by him because he is enough. He is better. And it brings us to a place where we can repent, even before an odd passage about blood, blood being splashed around all over the place. It brings God no glory for you and me to trust in our own behavior, to rescue us or improve our place with him. It doesn't bring God any glory at all to say, I appreciate what you did on the cross, but it wasn't enough. I'm going to have to add to it. It doesn't give him any glory at all. Let's finish this little passage out as we close This is going to be in verse 9, 24 verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. That's interesting. They saw him. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Okay. This is interesting. It's a powerful scene. They beheld God and they ate and they drank. Again, we come back to the main idea. He makes a way for us to thrive by guiding us as an angel, by providing a way through our enemies, He makes a way for us by covering our rebellion, by developing a system like the sacrificial system where he can pull us close. He makes a way for us to thrive as he draws us close as friends where we can eat and drink and celebrate. This is interesting because it's a moment that cannot be described in human language, which is why I think Moses is not very elaborate on it. He gives like a couple sentences to it because why bother explaining something that can't be described? They came close to God, and God did not zap them. He didn't tase them. Now, no one's ever seen God as God truly is. I don't know what they saw 
It was not complete. It was partial. But they came close, as close as you could come. And they were considered friends. He did not lay a hand of wrath on them. And they ate and they drank. They ate and they drank. This is what Jesus says to his disciples as he breaks the bread. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then when he comes, we proclaim something totally different. Where we don't see partially like they did, but we see completely. But for now, we celebrate. We behold as he reveals himself, we eat, and we drink.